Well, it's been a very busy week. And I, for some of our saints here, I, let me just say, take a breath. It has been busy. Um, the past few days, we buried a brother in Christ. He finished the race. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 4, and he said this from a, dungeon, from a deep prison cell as he was about um, to finish his race um, there in Rome. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. You know, Jim um, left this world, and I would say he left everything, but he took one thing with him. He was clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So everything else he left behind, but he took that with him. And I hope that we can follow the example of that faithful man. And we have the insurance. I hope that you have the assurance that when you leave this life, you take that with you. Because that is everything. To stand before the Lord, clothed in His righteousness, and His righteousness alone. So a busy week, and we have Thanksgiving. We have so much going on today. And we've got our dinner tonight at 5.59. And my prayer is just that you come with a thankful heart. There is so much so much to be thankful for. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And as you're doing that, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Can we do that? Can we just pray? And ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Not only in creation, creation alone is, is sufficient to condemn all men before you because it screams of your glory and it declares you as the creator of all things. But you have revealed yourself through your word and most perfectly through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds. And as we look at your word, May the truths of your word flow through our minds down to our hearts and change our hearts. And at the end of the service, may we be able to say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. And so we pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this name we pray. Amen. 
Our passage this morning continues with Luke's description of the suffering, sufferings of Christ as he's brought before the religious leaders of his day. And now he's going to be brought before the civil leaders and rulers of Rome. If you were with us last week, Brian Otten brought to us the passage um, as we ended uh, chapter 22, as Christ was before taken from the Garden of Gethsemane by the soldiers of the officers of the, uh, of the uh, chief priests and the Pharisees and brought before the leaders, uh, the council of Jerusalem. He's beaten. He's mocked. Then he's questioned by those counselors. And Brian's main point was this. And this truth carries, and you'll see it carry on through this passage and through the rest of the passages as we look at the suffering and the death of Christ. His point was this. The suffering and victory of Christ should give us strength to faithful perseverance in the suffering and trials of our daily walk as disciples of Christ. And I hope that was part of your meditation of this week and thinking about that truth um, from Scripture. You know, I don't know if anyone's ever said to you, or maybe you thought to yourself, well, I tell you, I would believe, I would believe if only I had more evidence. If only... Or better yet, if I could just see Jesus, if I could have just been there, then I would believe. I think as we continue in our text this morning, Luke will make it most obvious, and Brian mentioned this last week, that man's problem is not a problem of evidence. It's not a lack of evidence. It's the depravity of man's heart, depraved in his heart. And he is a God-hater and a self-lover. Open rebellion to God and utter disdain for God is the only response to the depraved heart. And again, man's refusal to submit to the person of Jesus Christ is, is, is not a lack of evidence, but it is depravity of his heart. And really this depravity has been evident throughout our whole study in the book of Luke, as we've seen the religious leaders repeatedly, repeatedly, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to do away with him. <clears throat> During Christ's ministry, John says this in John 10, he says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him, and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, just tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, well, I told you, and you do not believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. I mean, what more could you want? The blind were made to see, the deaf were made to hear, the lame were made to walk. He calmed the storms, he raised the dead. All of the works, Jesus said, bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father. Are one. The Jews picked up stones again 
to stone him. This wasn't the first time they tried this. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Of which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but, be, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Claim to be God. So last week we saw Jesus before the religious leaders of his time. And they said to Jesus, Hey, if you're the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe me. If I ask you, you will not answer. Again, man's refusal to submit to the person of Jesus Christ and to accept God's only provision for his sin is not lack of evidence. It's the depravity of our hearts. The doctrine of the depravity of man is an important doctrine of our faith. If I do not fully comprehend the depths of my sin and the depravity of my heart, I cannot comprehend the depths of God's love and the extent of his grace. But when I do understand it, my heart swells with thanksgiving. And my heart says, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Well, we're going to go to the head, the head piece here for just a moment. You know, if you looked at our, at their doctrinal statement, I don't know when the last time you just said, hey, you know, I was just read through CBC's doctrinal statement. So let me, so let me just read a small portion. Here's what our doctrinal statement says. If, if, if you're a member of CBC or if you're a visitor, and you're like, what do they believe about man? Let me just read a small portion of our doctrinal statement to you. God created man for his own glory. That's why we were created. Man was directly and immediately created by a special act of God in his own image and likeness and is the crowning work of his creation. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was, and was endowed by his creator with intelligence, volition, and moral responsibility to God. God provided everything necessary for man to glorify God, enjoying God's fellowship, and to live his life in the will of God. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. In Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God, man lost his innocence, incurred the penalty of spiritual and physical death, became subject to the wrath of God, and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God. All men are sinners by nature, by choice, and by divine declaration. Man is spiritually dead in his sins and incapable of saving himself. Therefore, salvation is wholly of God's grace. Three strikes. By nature, man is born in sin. Romans 5 we have inherited a sin nature. That precious little baby enters the world. That baby enters as a sinner. And you think that innocent little baby, until it keeps you up all night, 
or until it's three and it says, or two and says, no. By nature, by nature we are born in sin. We commit acts of sin, strike two. We're slaves to sin. We commit acts of sin by choice. And then thirdly, by divine declaration. Man has the imputed sin of Adam. Do you know this? When Adam sinned, God put that to your account. That was put to your account. Adam's sin. Paul says in Romans 5, the one trespass, that is Adam's sin, led to condemnation of all men. All men are sinners and justly condemned by a just and holy God. God's plan for redemption and reconciliation requires the substitutionary death of the sinless Son of God because we are helpless and cannot help ourselves. We're incapable. We're unwilling to submit to God. Well, another important doctrine, if, you go, if you're going to go to the doctrine of Community Bible Church, another very important doctrine that ties with that is the person of Jesus Christ and the sinlessness of Christ. Because He alone can satisfy, and He alone is qualified to meet the demands of justice and to pay the penalty for our sin. So can I take one minute and just read you that paragraph from our doctrinal statement? Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, possessing all the fullness of divine nature and attributes. In these, He is co-equal, co-substantial, and co-eternal with the Father. God the Father created all things according to His own will through His Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, all things continue in existence and in operation. In His incarnation, Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In the incarnation, Christ willingly surrendered only the prerogatives of deity, but nothing of the divine essence, either in, either in decree or kind. In His incarnation, Christ took upon Himself the demands and necessities of human nature and identified Himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. Jesus Christ represents humanity and deity in indivisible oneness. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God. In his death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. His death was voluntary, vicarious, substitutionary, propitiatory, and redemptive. That is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. That's what we believe. If you come here... We're teaching that here at Community Bible Church. And so a proper understanding of the depravity of man and a proper understanding of the sinlessness of Christ is necessary to understand the work of Christ on the cross in his death as my substitute. So in our narrative this morning, Luke appears to go out of his way to demonstrate to contrast that, the depravity of man and the sinlessness of Christ. Now that's a long introduction. 
Sorry about that. We haven't read our text yet. And our text is a fairly long narrative. So if you're there, if you're in Luke 23, let's begin. We're going to read uh, verses 1 um, through 25. Um, so, did I say, let's see, did I say that right? Yes, 1 to 25. So, let me read that. Let me, but as, as is a custom for us, before I read that, let me give you the main point. Okay, so that I, we do this, I think we do this so that as we're reading the text, you, you kind of get a, um, can kind of see that. Um, the main point is this, a heart that truly understands the exchange that took place on the cross is the heart that is overwhelmed with thankfulness and praise. The heart that says, Jesus, thank you. Because it's at the cross where Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, takes my place as He bears the full wrath of God as a just penalty for my sin. All right? So now let's read and see this. Starting in verse 1, when the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you a king of the Jews? And he, as Jesus, answered him, You have said, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests, And the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, and he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he did not answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, They had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll punish him and release him. But they all cried together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. 
for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Three observations I want to make, and then we'll look a little, little more detail at the text. I think Luke makes this plain. Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God. Although tested and tempted in every way, Christ lived a sinless life. And then when tried both before the religious and civil courts, he's found innocent. He has not violated God's law, and he has not violated civil law. And we see that. Another observation, and this is again throughout the text that we've read from birth, man is utterly depraved in every imagination of his heart. Man is inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is right and acceptable before a holy God. The depraved heart lives in open rebellion against God. The the depraved heart cannot even tolerate the presence of God. Crucify him, I would say, if I had been there. That is the depraved heart. And yet, we see the great exchange. Reconciliation of God and man is wholly a work of God, whereby Jesus Christ exchanges his righteousness for my unrighteousness. Sin that Jesus takes to the cross in complete and full satisfaction of the holy wrath of God. I am a Barabbas. And so Luke begins the text with the whole company of them. Well, the whole company of them are the religious leaders. And let me make this statement. Man is depraved in his self-made religion. The depraved heart will insist on setting its own terms of being reconciled to God in a way that glorifies man. And that is what religion is. Think about it. Think about all the religions of the world. Every one of them, if you give them any thought, they're works-based. It's something man has to do to please God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not so. It's based on the sole work of God with no zero zilch contribution of man. And we've seen these actions of the religious leaders of Israel throughout our study of the book of Luke. At every point in Christ's ministry, they accuse Jesus of not following their traditions, not following their misinterpretations of the Scripture. And so it is. They bring Him, the whole company of them, bring Him, bring Christ before Pilate. When we look at Pilate, I see this in the depraved heart of Pilate. This is an observation of depravity. And we'll see this a little bit with Pilate. The depraved heart rejects truth. That's what Pilate is to me. Demonstrating the depraved heart not only creates itself religion, we see that in the religious leaders, but it rejects truth. He does does what's right in his own minds. His morality, that is what's right or what's wrong, 
is relative. It changes. He doesn't, he doesn't want to put Christ to death. But then he changes. It changes. It's relative. It's driven by his own ambition and desire for self-preservation. Now, this, you may already know this about Pilate. Pilate is appointed prefect, prefect of the Roman province of Judea, Samaria, and Udemia. Idemia. As a Roman prefect, he is granted the power of supreme judge. That means he has sole authority to order a criminal's execution. That's why the religious leaders needed Pilate in this plot. He had the sole authority to execute a criminal. He also had the responsibility of maintaining law and order by any means that he saw fit. And as a prefect, something else that's important. He was responsible for collecting taxes. Responsible for collecting taxes. And history remembers Pilate as a cruel and ruthless man. You remember when we, when we, as going through Luke, we came into Luke chapter 13, and there were some present at that very time who told him, they were telling Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, if you know anything, and I know you do about the Jewish sacrifices, they were made there in the temple. It was a holy place and a place where they're sacrificed. Pilate enters this place, butchers these Galileans who are making these sacrifices and mingles that blood with the blood of their sacrifices. Anything. We don't know much more than that. We don't, but we know about that event. We know this. Pilate was cruel and ruthless. And our text shows Pilate as being hesitant to condemn an innocent man. An innocence that Pilate insists upon, right? But Jesus becomes an obstacle to Pilate's ability to keep peace and avoid a riot. Therefore, he condemns Christ. To death. Three accusations. So I told you a little bit about what Pilate's responsibilities are. Will those fit with the accusations that are made? And they begin to accuse him, saying, for this is verse 2, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So do you hear what they're accusing him of? Insurrection, misleading our nation. They're accusing him of insurrection. Teaching that which is contrary to the Jewish culture and traditions. And they're saying, he's a threat. He's a threat to Rome because he's going to create this, uh, this uproar. It's an insurrection. Forbidding us to pay taxes. Well, I, I just told you, that was one of the things that, that Pilate, he, he was, that was part of his charge, was to collect taxes. So they accused Jesus. We just went through, we just went through Luke 20. What did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar... What is Caesar's? And unto God, what is God? And then he claims to be a king. Ah, oh, that's it. That's the killer right there. He claims to be a king. So they bring Jesus before Pilate. And now here he is. A beaten and battered man before Pilate. And he makes no defense of himself. 
And I think Pilate sees Jesus as just a victim of a misguided crowd rage, right? This, the, the crowd is all worked up, and somehow Jesus has gotten himself sideways with the religious leaders of his time. And so Pilate's in a little bit of a pickle. He doesn't want to crucify this man that seems to be a king. I mean, he says, he says, and, and I think, I think, I think when he says this in verse three, I think there's a little bit of a bewilderment. He says, are, are, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, really? I mean, imagine a man standing here before him, beaten and battered. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? John gives us a little bit more about this conversation. Um, so John, in John chapter 18, you don't have to turn it, but let me just read it to you. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servant would be fighting, and I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, Oh, so you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. You said so. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says to him, what is truth? Imagine this. (laughs) Gee, Pilate looks straight into the face of truth. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate looks straight into the face of truth and says, what is truth? There's nothing new in this question. I hope you know. I know you know this. This is the same question that was at, has been asked down through the ages. It, all, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent said, did God really say Did God really say what is true? When the depraved heart of man comes face to face with truth, man outright rejects truth and considers it to be utter foolishness. You only need to look at the culture around you. The only intolerable claim in our culture today is the claim for absolute truth. It's okay for you to have a truth with a little t. You know, just your private little truth. That's okay. And we're going to tolerate everybody with their own little truth. That's good. But don't tell me about an absolute truth. About truth with a capital T. There's absolutely, and here's the ironic thing of it. There's absolutely, in our culture, no tolerance for absolute truth. And hence... There's no tolerance for the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Christianity is the only religion, and I don't consider it a religion, it's a relationship, it's the only 
religion in the world's mind, that's not tolerated in our self-tolerating culture. The psalmist says this in Psalm 14, and again in Psalm 53, and throughout Scripture, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man and sees to see if there is any who understand, any who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. From birth, have we got this? From birth, man is utterly depraved in every imagination of his heart. Man is inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is right and acceptable before a just and holy God. For the unregenerate heart, the wisdom of God is utter foolishness. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of, of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, Paul says, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who, be, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, Boast in the Lord. Let the heart of the redeemed say, Jesus, thank you. Well, verses 4 through 7, Pilate dismisses the charges and declares Christ's innocence. I find no guilt in this man, Pilate says. But then Pilate hears Jesus is from Galilee. And that's the jurisdiction of Herod. So it's like, hey, man, I can punt this off to Herod. And so he sends Christ to Herod. 
I want to say this about Herod, about that depraved heart. Here's the example. The depraved heart also mocks God. That's what, when I see Herod, I see the heart that mocks God. Now, here's a few things we should know about Herod. Herod Antipas, he was the son of King Herod the Great. Now, when King Herod the Great died, he had several sons who courted the emperor in Rome. They wanted to inherit their father's kingdom. Herod Antipas was, was given rule over the province of Galilee and Perea. His official title was Tetrarch because he ruled over a fourth of his father's kingdom. But he was a king wannabe. I mean, his ambition was to have his father's kingdom. And so he sought to earn the trust of the emperor by keeping peace in his region. Peace is what he wanted to keep. The other thing we know about Herod was um, he had John the Baptist beheaded. Um, first in prison and then later beheaded. Because John had said something that was offensive. John had said, he, John had said, um, you have the wife that you have. This was Herodias, his wife. He says, it's not lawful for you to have her. Because Herodias had previously been the wife of his brother, Philip. Well, um, apparently Herodias didn't take that very kindly, and she wanted John the Baptist's head. And she got it. She got it from Herod. After John's beheading, and after hearing the miracles that Jesus performed, Herod, Antipas, he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. So there was a little, little trepidation about that, not knowing, hey, man, he's come back from the dead. I mean, a little, little, little nervousness about that. Um, but now is Herod's opportunity to see Jesus. He really has never seen him. And so now they bring Jesus before Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, verses, starting with verse 11, um, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he, that is Christ, made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraigned him in splendid clothing. They sent him back to Pilate. So now Jesus stands before Herod. Maybe, Herod thinks, I can get a miracle, a little entertainment out of this whole thing. The man who sought kingship himself, mocks the king of kings and lord of lords. What kind of king, Herod thinks, what kind of self-proclaimed king stands before me? Where is his kingdom? Where are his disciples? Where is his army? He has no defense. What kind of king is this? He mocks him. And Scripture says that Jesus made no answer. You know, at this, no answer is necessary. No answer would make a difference. What did he say to the rulers from last week? Jesus said, if I tell you, you'll not believe. But think about this. Jesus, the teacher, is now living out what he has taught. And isn't that what a teacher always does? 
Think of Jesus as he's standing there before Herod, being mocked. Think, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so they, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or maybe you only need to flash back to that night before, that evening before, just a few hours before, where the disciples are saying, hey, who is the greatest? Who will be the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The man King Herod says, others serve and sacrifice for me. But the Christ King says, I serve others. I serve others. The man King says, he enforces his rule and his authority. But the Christ King humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. Why? Why did he stand there and not make a defense? Because he was going to the cross. For me, for my sin, he stood there and took the mockery of mankind. So Jesus holds his tongue. And he gives the greatest demonstration of meekness. I've said this before to our young guys. You know what meekness is? It's defined as strength under control. Think about that. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is being mocked by the man, by the man who he created. The Bible says that Jesus holds all things together. Every atom in Herod's body, every molecule was held together by Jesus Christ and didn't just, boom, move into randomness as he mocked him. But he did that for me. Jesus did that so that I could live. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. But before this, they had been enemies. You know, there's one thing that unites the depraved man's heart, and that's his rebellion against God. Someone might say, well, no, Jesus was a good teacher. 
But once they understand that Jesus was making absolute and exclusive statements, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The depraved man rejects that and unites with all of the depravity in that. And so Pilate calls together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man, the one, as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I find no guilt of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he had sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I'll punish him and release him. Historical fact, when put on a public trial, this is historical fact, when put on public trial, both Pilate and Herod find Jesus innocent of all charges. He is the sinless Son of God. And so Jesus, the sinless Son of God, he lives a public life, a sinless life, and now he's found innocent, even when falsely accused and tried in the courts of man. But then man's problem is not a lack of evidence, is it? It's a depraved heart. And the depraved heart says, I don't want to have anything to do with that man. And so what do they do? They say, no, away with this man. And release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. The third time, Pilate says to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over. To their will. Barabbas. There's Barabbas. He represents mankind in all of his depravity. He's an enemy of the state and he's an enemy of God. Right? He's guilty of murder. And he's guilty of, of starting an insurrection. So he's, so he's violated both God's laws and man's laws. Guilty of both. And in contrast, here stands Jesus, the sinless Son of God. Jesus is declared innocent by, by the public officials. Three times, three times Pilate says, I find no fault with this man. Herod agrees with me. Herod found no fault. In Matthew, Matthew tells us that Pilate's wife has a dream and comes to Pilate during the trial and says, Man, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And the thief on the cross, we'll see a couple weeks from now, says, this man has done nothing wrong. And the centurion standing there at the foot of the cross, what does the centurion say? Certainly, this man was innocent. And so, Jesus, the the innocent, is exchanged for Barabbas, the guilty. The guilty man is pardoned. And the innocent man is condemned. The sinless son of God is condemned as a sinner. While the guilty sinner is released just as if he had never, ever sinned. Oh, 
That's the definition of justification. Just as if I'd never sinned. Let me read you one other short piece, and I'm, I'm closing with this, um, of, our, of our doctrinal statement. And here's the definition of justification. Justification is a judicial act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely on the work and merit of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is apart from any virtue or work of man. It is a gift of God's grace and involves the placing of the sinner's sin on Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. In this exchange, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Justification brings the believer into a restored relationship of peace and favor with God. Paul says it like this, but God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been reconciled. I'm going to close with a story um, that you should be familiar with. Remember now, remember, the heart that truly understands the exchange that takes place on the cross is the heart that should be overwhelmed with thankfulness and praise. It's the heart that should say, Jesus, thank you. Well, here's the story. It takes place in the time of Christ. In fact, it takes place during his ministry. In fact, we looked at it in Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees had asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, oh, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman she is who is touching his feet. For she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, say it, teacher. Jesus said, this a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled a larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. 
Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The last song that we're going to sing is a song that I think is so appropriate. I'll just read the words. I know, you, I know you'll read them when you sing them, but man, I just want to read them to you because they're so moving to me. I, I, I love the music that is played. I love the selection of the songs. They're always so appropriate. The mystery of the cross, I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary, you the perfect Holy One, Trust your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace. Your mercy. And your kindness. No, no. And your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once you're in me, now seated at the table. Jesus, thank you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus suffered and died for me. Thank you that while I was yet a sinner, your enemy, a God-hater, a self-lover, that Jesus went to the cross and paid the full penalty for my sin. And thank you that now I am clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And someday when you call me home, that's all I need to take.
And now I'm called a son of God. So I say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.